church? What do children look like? How do they define who they are, given where we've been? It's a massive question. And of course, in some ways, there's no change at all because you know, childhood doesn't change that way. But in many ways now, it's the most complicated time there's ever been to, to, to be a child. Um... How did SpongeBob find his way onto the NFL field? Why is Lego taking the fashion world by storm? Where did all that Baby Yoda merch come from? And why are people going crazy for Captain America pajamas? We explore what makes certain consumer products stand out above the rest, thanks to a little thing called brand licensing. Welcome to the Licensing Mixtape, a podcast by License Global. Hello and welcome to season three of the Licensing Mixtape, where we're ramping up for event season with panels, insights, and post-pandemic strategy discussions to give you everything you need to navigate the brand landscape. I'm Ben Roberts, Senior Content Editor for License Global, and we're kicking off this brand new season with a look at a vitally important panel from the License Global Live series, where Gary Pope of Kids Industries, Mark Kingston of Viacom CBS, and John Gisby of Wild Brain Spark discuss the evolution of kids' content. I'll leave you with this amazing insight from our March panel, but in the meantime, I have an update from License Global HQ. After closing the Brand and Licensing Innovation Summit Europe edition on June 11, we're preparing for the launch of Licensing Expo Virtual and all the amazing content that comes with it, so be sure to clear your diary on August 24 to 26 to attend, and the launch of the second Brand and Licensing Innovation Summit in New York come October. Brand Licensing Europe is also making its return in November this year, but don't worry, a season three of the licensing mixtape, along with License Global, will give you all the updates, insights, and details you need ahead of these tentpole moments in the event calendar. But without further ado, here's the insightful content panel dubbed Changing the Channel. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Knight, VP of the licensing business at Informa Markets. Um, I'm working alongside an international team. We produce Licensing Expo, Brand Licensing Europe, Licensing Expo China and Japan, our newly created brand and licensing innovation summits and license global magazine and website. And I'm really delighted to welcome you all today to license global live. The first in a series of monthly webinars focusing on a specific licensing theme. Our inaugural webinar today takes a look at the ways in which kids behavior is changing with a particular focus on content. So without further ado, let's start by asking the panel to introduce themselves. Um, they're all going to tell you who they are, um, you know, one thing they're most looking forward to doing when we all come finally out of lockdown. So let's start with Mark Kingston. Thanks, Anna. Um, Mark Kingston. I'm Senior Vice President of International Licensing for Viacom CBS. I'm delighted to be here today, so thank you very much. Um, what am I looking forward to after the pandemic? Um, well, I'm in training for the Channel Swim for the Light Fund. So I'm actually looking forward to getting into a proper swimming pool and not swimming in uh, almost uh, sub-zero temperatures in the River Thames at the moment. I'm really looking forward to getting into some warmer water. I bet you are. Well, fortunately, the weather's starting to pick up, so hopefully that will help too. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's John Gisby. I run Wildbrain Spark. We're part of the Wildbrain Group. Uh, Wildbrain's the biggest uh, independent kids and family media business. Uh, Wildbrain Spark is a digital distribution and studio uh, company based in London. Um, and via the channels that we run, particularly on YouTube, uh, we reach about one in three kids around the world. Um, so what am I most looking forward to post-lockdown? Uh, well, obviously hugging my mum and dad, because that's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, that's That stands. Um, the other one I just want to put on is uh, I'm looking forward to being part of an audience. Uh, so I love digital media. I love broadcasting. I love ABOD and all the rest of it. I'm looking forward to, forward to being part of a crowd that's experiencing something. Yeah, me too. I, I hear you there. Um, and finally, let's move on to Gary. Hello there. I'm Gary Pope. Uh, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Kids Industries. Uh, we're nearly 20 years old now, and we make the brands and businesses we work with stronger through research, insight, strategy. I am hugging my mum, going to the theatre, uh, and attending BLE. How's that, Emma? <laughs> perfect answer to that question, of course. Thanks very much for that. As am I. So let's kick off with the with the first question, um, which Gary, this one's going to come to you. So, what does the kid of 2021, 2022 look like? What does church? What do children look like? How do they define who they are? Given where we've been, it's a massive question, um, and we've been asked this a lot. 
And of course, in some ways, there's no change at all um, because you know, childhood doesn't change that way. But in many ways now, it's the most complicated time there's ever been to, to, to be a child. Um, in many ways, there's been a perfect storm, hasn't there? And, and much of what was starting to bubble up before we entered all of this nonsense um, and was defining childhood in the 2020s, I think has been accelerated. So I don't think that, that many things have been particularly changed irrevocably, but things have been accelerated. And there's, there's perhaps four or five different buckets that you can, you can put that into. Um, attitudes, media consumption, and then the sort of socialisation and the health issues, which, which we're all very much aware of ourselves and for our children, um, are all having an impact on how children see themselves and where they're going in the immediate future. But look, to sort of try and box this off, I'd say that children now are more empowered than they've ever been. Um, they see the world increasingly for what it is. Um, and Generation Alpha, these young ones, 2010, 2014, perhaps Jen said as well, you know, they're the most emancipated, the most vocal generation um, that we've seen today. And, and, you know, that chocolate box image of childhood that we were previously briefed on by clients pre-pandemic, -pre that just kind of evaporated over the last 12 months. Now, we as an agency are receiving briefs where, where that, that, that visage is starting to, to re-emerge. Re you know, children and parents want to get back to proper childhood. And it's very interesting because I, I guess I am expecting, anticipating an acceleration in what was already emerging. And it's a, a rebalancing, if you like, of what is and what is not childhood. Um, Technology is the thing, isn't it, which seems to have overcome or overtaken everything. Um, and using technology, understanding how technology impacts their lives, what's what some of the big boys in the US are saying that, you know, where we are now is where they expected to be in four or five years time. Everything seems to have got so much quicker and children are inhabiting, I know we're going to talk about consumption in a little while, but they're, they're grabbing hold of various devices, various platforms, and they're making their voices heard. They are the most activist and brands are responding to this, I think, in a very interesting way as well. So we're seeing things like in, in Call of Duty, for example, with BLM image in Destiny 2, there is, if I remember rightly, there's a pin that you can buy, which is BLM. So, so everything is changing all at once, but actually childhood is kind of rebalancing in some way, ways, which I think is, is for me, very, um, makes me very happy. Let's put it that way. You asked what, what childhood looks like in 21, 22. And, and this is where it perhaps gets a little bit more, more serious and concerned. I think these things are being addressed and I've been very vocal about this. Um, what a child looks like now is the same as they've always looked like. But what's going on inside now is a little bit different. And that, and that worries me. The long-term mental effects of our, of our children is something that I feel very, very passionately about. Education here in the UK and our education secretary um, has suggested that we're going to reduce our, our, our school holidays and increase our school day. And for me, this is just utter nonsense. You know, what children need now more than at any time ever is the opportunity to play and to socialise. So um, it's not all doom and gloom. I think childhood is going back a little bit to what childhood is. Um, I think there's lots of reasons to be very happy and very positive. Does that answer your essay question? I'm exhausted. That was a great, um, great beginning to this conversation. Um, and you alluded to the next question um, just a minute ago, but... Let's move on now to how kids are consuming content. So how are kids consuming content today? By today, I mean kind of in the midst of a pandemic. And how has that changed from a year ago, let alone over the past few years? John, let's come to you first with that one, please. I, I'm gonna really going to draw some of the threads together from, from, uh, from what Gary's just said, I think. There were plenty of kids this time last year uh, who were consuming content in the way that lots of kids are now. So big believer that... Uh, the future's already here. It's just not that widely distributed, the kind of famous William Gibson quote. Um, and I think what's happened over the course of the last year, what we've seen is this balancing kids' content viewing between the traditional linear broadcasters, the big platforms, the, the on-demand platforms, the premium players, the Netflix and the Amazons of the world, uh, and then the big, what we call AVOD platforms, so the advertiser video on-demand platforms like YouTube, 
that that ecosystem's been there for probably the best part of 10 years you know, off and on um what's happened and what's shifted in the course of uh, in the course of the last year i think is the relative balance and the relative importance of those platforms has changed significantly it's been a big acceleration in the importance of uh, of SVOD, uh, the big players like Netflix obviously doing very well. What we've seen on the YouTube side, enormous increase in viewing. Um, and as part of that, also then a shift in device. Uh, and that's really working in two ways. Kids increasingly having access to their own device, which is very personal to them, which means that they are in control of the content they're watching and the content they can go and discover. But also equally interesting, the shift of, uh, of viewing from devices back to the big screen. So if you take our content and the way it's viewed um, of our 800, 900 channels or so on, on YouTube, uh, about half of that viewing now is on, uh, is on a connected TV. And that's been a big trend. That trend was, that, that growth was, was, was there. It was massively accelerated by the pandemic. Um, I have a personal theory that actually People just had time to figure out how the kit worked. And, you know, we're all sitting home at lockdown and actually, oh, well, it's been on my list of things to do to see if I can get YouTube on the telly. And yes, I can. And, oh, this is great. And now I'll watch it. So what we've seen, particularly on the on the kind of premium content side, um, is the growth of, uh, of, of, of availability and viewing on the big screen. That, in turn, turning into co-viewing. Um, and if you actually put premium content on a big screen in front of a family we've all grown up we kind of know what that is we've always called it telly we've it's it's been there for a while but it's the pieces are coming together in a different way so i'm sure we'll come on to this as to what this means for for for, for brands and how content works across those those different platforms and how they all fit together um but what we're seeing is this this the, the nothing nothing ever dies everything just quite sort of takes a new shape um and that shape has been uh, has been significantly changed I think it will change a little bit as, 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 as the pandemic ends. I think there will be probably more time spent outdoors um, because we can again. Um, but the viewing behavior that's happened and been, been unlocked as a result around a personalized device where the child is really in control of what they choose to watch um, and the services they use. But equally, this growth in family viewing in front of the big screen, but coming from different content providers alongside the providers that, 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 uh, that kids and families have always used. I think those two are here to stay. Perfect. Thanks so much, John. Um, Gary, if you've got anything that you'd like to add to the same question, so how how are you seeing kids consuming content, and how has that changed? Um, I love your um, your personal perspective on why this is happening, John. I think you're I think you're right. It's really interesting. Technology is anything that is invented. Ken Robinson said this: technology is anything that is invented after you were born. You know, so for, for our children, it's not difficult to get whatever they want on whatever device they want because they don't need to know how it works. We do. They don't. It's a bit like when you had a VHS video recorder and it only had eight buttons, eight buttons on a VHS video recorder. And we could work it as kids in the 70s and 80s, but our parents were completely flummoxed by this dark magic that was this box that would record television. You know, that hasn't changed. It doesn't change. I think that... The way that children take their content, they'll get it wherever they can. But I think there's also something very interesting happening in the very core, the DNA of how media is consumed. And, you know, I, I, I'd almost suggest that media is now more participated in than consumed in that, in that passive way. There, and there are a number of examples of this, aren't there? there there's... Um, you know, the, I guess it starts off with the, the YouTubers and the unboxers and all of that kind of thing. And then, you know, Twitch, I think in January, Twitch had 3.9 million subs and it was at 10 million at the beginning of this year. That hasn't happened by chance. That's happened because, you know, but that's passive. But then you get to something like Roblox or something like um, Hellosaurus, which is a fantastic fantastic edutainment kind of app with a, a live presenter on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side, you've got um, uh, a mirror of what the presenter's telling the child. Maybe it's learning numbers or maybe it's, it's uh, colours or something as simple as that. But this presenter doing things, which is engaging, and the child can interact and participate in that piece of television, ostensibly, 
And what happens is, of course, because the child's experiencing this in a divergent way from two different sources, same meaning, they get to know what this means. They get to understand that concept. And that's fascinating. I'm an ex-teacher. That's fascinating to me. Really, really fascinating. So this notion of participation is really, really stunning. Um, Minecraft, you know, um, I don't know quite how old Minecraft is now, but it's over 10 years. And now we've got, there, there's this wonderful thing called Anything World that I don't know if you, you've come across. If you do get a chance, go and have a look. Ubisoft have, have invested in this startup. And it's a sort of, it's a code or no code platform, depending on what you want. Um, where you can bring literally anything into the world, from llamas to townhouses to flying unicorns, it's whatever. It's kind of like that open, wonderful world that we always wanted Lego to create as kids, but it actually does it. It's real. So I think that, you know, if we think about the acceleration that we were just talking about in the way that the, the pandemic has meant more time and, and more access to media and the advances in technology that have been made, because maybe those very clever people that live in basements with... With, uh, with black T-shirts on, you know, they've been coding away, terribly, terribly busy, making this magic, and it's all coming to fruition now. So I think in the next 18 months, we're going to see a markedly different landscape for children's media consumption. Wow, well, both great answers to that question. Um, John alluded to this slightly um, in his response just now, but, but Gary, sticking with you, do you think they're going to stick into 2022 and beyond? Or do you think that, you know, these are just a, a result of the pandemic and this is temporary? No, I think I think I think once we learn these things and we enjoy these things, then we'll, we're, they're, they're absolutely going to stick. There's no question why they'll stick. Um, they'll stick because businesses need them to stick, if nothing else. Um, but but I think that we will also, to, to John's point, we, we are social creatures, aren't we? We need that physicality. So, you know, one of the things that I think that we will see in terms of, of, of media, and I know, you know Mark's business does an awful lot of wonderful things in, in this area, we will see experiential environments and, and location-based entertainment, themed entertainment in locations just go up a peg. It'll go up and up and up now because we're going we're to rebound. It's the nature of the human species. So I think the, the consumption behaviours... Yes, fixed, but the positive thing is it's going to make everything else a little bit more colourful. Well, here's hoping, for sure. Um, and so um, moving on to kind of, let's just let's just move out of the, the kids' space just temporarily. So, um, Mark, I'm going to come to you first with this question. So the behavioural changes we're, we're talking about, are these strongly linked to the younger generation or are you seeing some of these changes translate across different demographics? Yeah, that's a good question, Anna. And I think... Um, both Gary and John have alluded to it a little bit in some of their responses that the pandemic has meant that the last year has kind of fast-tracked everything for five years. But also, you know, when John was talking about people understanding how their TV, their connected TV worked and everything. And I think an older generation has therefore actually been housebound, been a little bit bored. I know my old man has signed up to a streaming service. He's 75. Before the pandemic, he would have never have signed up to a streaming service because he was out at the golf course four times a week. He's now not playing golf and getting out there. So he was desperate to watch more content. And, you know, he figured it out. Yeah, he had to make a few phone calls to his grandkids to, to kind of get it worked out. But I'm sure as long as there's great content being provided, he's going to continue keeping that service because he's enjoyed it. He's found new opportunities to watch documentaries that he wouldn't have found previously, new movies, new TV series he's binge-watched for the first time in his life. Um, so I do think, you know, the younger generation, we said that uh, our digital natives were already immersed in kind of this world. And yes, they're viewing content in, on more different platforms and across more different diverse areas of media. But I do think the older generation as well has now started to embrace a new way of viewing content, but also absorbing themselves in great content. Great point. And John, what would you add to the same question? We've grown up in a world in which we kind of link a device to a particular sort of content. And I don't think they make that distinction. Uh, some of the most successful content that we have on YouTube is content that is also on TV at the same time. If you're a fan of a particular character and you watch it on TV, you don't watch TV all the time. Uh, you don't watch a linear broadcast all the time. So if you're a fan of a particular character and it pops up on your uh, on your service that you're using on your tablet um, and it's, uh, it's, it's on YouTube or, or another platform like that, you're going to watch it there too. And you don't make a distinction between, uh, between devices. Um, and I think increasingly that will be the case. And I think as, a, as an industry, the content industry is figuring out how those different 
forms of consumption and how the different exposures to the brand fit. It is I mean, jargon, but it is the kind of 360 view of the brand and the exposure of the brand and the IP to the, to the audience. Um, I think the other piece that uh, I think is uh, is is really material is, is is interaction and games. So the social piece it depends on the age of the child, but the social piece probably doesn't kick in. Um, I'd be really interested in Gary's perspective on this, but it's I would imagine it's at least eight plus. Probably when you start to get a device that actually has a uh, has a mobile phone signal, which means you can actually communicate with people uh, when you're out and about. So that social piece, I think, is is slightly slightly later. But the gaming piece is uh, is 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 consistent much earlier. So really thinking about um, what that means as that generation ages, uh, and then how these different forms of content, what that means for brands across different types of content consumption and different platforms. I think that does change, and I think we can see those changes in the way that children are, are consuming and, and interacting with content, and importantly as well, creating content. So creating content of themselves, either either to put onto a, a social video sharing site or to go and build a game in Roblox or whatever it is. That is a different form of content consumption and participation than, than any of us had as children. Uh, and and what that looks like going forward, to use Gary's Gary's example, I think the world I think the world becomes more colourful. I think it's a, I think it's going to be really interesting watching that generation grow up. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Gary, let's come to you with the question John posed you. So um, you know this concept of the social piece or the participation piece. Do you how do you see that forming across kind of kids into into teens and, and beyond? Kind of how do you see that? Yeah, I, I attended a conference a while ago. Um, and I'm, I'm almost making this number up, so I'm pulling this from the back of my head, but something that John said just stirred it in me. 27% of seven-year-olds in the UK, I hasten to add, have a social media account of some kind. Now, that includes YouTube in terms of the, 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 the presenter shared. I think it was a children's society, actually, so robust data. And that, that's phenomenal, isn't it, when you think about it? And as you're, you're right, John, sort of eight is when that, that, that personal acquisition of, of a device begins. But, of course, you know, one of, these, one of these things, you get a new one every year, don't you? And actually, you just pass it down to, 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 to whoever's youngest, and it's getting passed down and down and down. They're just playing on games, but then they connect to the Wi-Fi, and there happens to be a WhatsApp open on there or the WhatsApp apps on there, and they'll get on. And, you know, boom, kids of six and seven are engaged in the world of social media. And, and that, that, that bothers me, actually, if I'm honest with you. That really bothers me. I'm a big believer, and this sounds terrible for a bleeding heart liberal, I'm a big believer in regulation, big believer in regulation in this space. And I think that we have, us, audience, you, me, John, Mark, have a responsibility to ensure that, that children are super safe when we create content, which can be accessed in this way. And I know certainly Wild Brain have that very much at the front of the uh, front centre, and they do, and I know the same is true for Viacom, CBS as well. But there are those that don't see it quite that way. Um, and the idea of acquiring children into your 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 ecosystem, as we've seen with the with the streaming wars, you get family because actually that's a Trojan horse to keep them forever. So you know the children's audience is a delicate one. It's one that we must be extremely respectful of. And I am always concerned when I hear words like social media and children in the same breath. I don't believe children should be accessing those things till at least thirteen. I'll stop being so serious. Yeah, not at all. It, it, it's a very interesting point and, and one that's certainly coming to the fore, particularly over the last uh, four to six months with what's going on in the world. Um, Mark, I want to come to you with a question about, you know, going back to the slightly more traditional content um, types. So linear TV, um, theatrical releases and blockbusters. How do you see those sort of more traditional types of content fitting into this new landscape that, that we've all been discussing? Yeah, I think at the heart of everything is always going to be content. We're talking about content delivery here and the content consumption. But ultimately, it's always going to be around content and great content, storytelling at its heart and really engaging content. I think, you know, people have talked about the death of the cinema or theatres for 60 years, whether it was with the cable TV coming along, VHS coming along, DVD coming along, streaming services. And look, back in 2018, I think the global box office was the largest it's ever been in the history of, of cinema. So I, I agree with what both Gary and, and John have said about, you know, we're, we're, so, we're a social species. So once we get out of this pandemic, 
there is a lot of pent-up demand, but ultimately we want to go and have those shared experiences. And I think the big movie theatrical experiences at the cinemas will continue to happen. Again, it's, it's still going to be great storytelling and great movies and the content creators, uh, you know, it's never been a better time to be a content creator and a producer of content because there are so many opportunities to get your content out there. So I, I do feel that the traditional platforms are still going to be there. They're actually probably going to become stronger. Gary mentioned about experiential experiences. I think, you know, the cinematic experiences and live experiences are going to get bigger and bolder and people will see it as a massive opportunity to go out and experience something with their family or with friends and a real mutually shared experience. Um, and then again, we call it TV, but again, what is TV it, in terms of how consumers are consuming that content, whether they're viewing it on a TV, on a tablet, on um, their iPhone or a, any other mobile device at all. I think there's just more access or more ability to view content than there ever has been in the history of media. Um, but again, at the heart of it, we'll still always come back to really strong storytelling that consumers can build an emotional attachment with the characters in that IP. And that's the fundamental critical thing here. There is going to be so much content out there, and a lot of that content is not going to build that emotional connection with the consumers that then can take it off screen to effectively the fourth screen, which is physical products. Um, and that is about building that emotional connection um, and over, over a long period of time so that people keep on coming back to your content. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, the, the industry is shifting. Um, and as I said, you know, people are viewing more content than ever before. And yes, there is more content out there and more IP, um, but it's at the heart of it. It is still about building that emotional connection with your audiences and your consumers. John, from your point of view, how are you seeing this kind of change the the consumer products landscape, if at all? But what what are you know what are you what impacts are you seeing there? I, I suspect it's a bit like going to the North Pole, which is that uh, if this analogy works, I mean you kind of, everybody always knew what the North Pole looks like, and it probably looks really quite different now. Um, so it's recognisable, but there's there's some there's some very different shapes. We we are the proud owners of the Teletubbies, um, and if you think back, I mean, Teletubbies fabulous creative, iconic, cultural uh, success in the, in the child content space. Uh, but one of the things that, that worked particularly well there was because so much content was commissioned up front and the distribution via the BBC was, was, uh, was set up front, creatively it had to be brilliant, and it was, but it took a lot of the risk away from all of the other pieces of the puzzle. So if, the, if, if you've got that kind of likely UK hit, you can get other distribution, you can get licensed and merchant and toys on board. And if you've got all of that lined up, you can get retail on board. What's fascinating, frustrating, harder, but also really exciting is that each of those pieces is now massively disrupted. So the ability for anybody to commission that amount of content up front and, and really bank on it being a global hit is much harder because all the distribution of the audience is so much more fragmented, which means it's much harder to get all the licensing deals in up front for a big global hit. And retail doesn't exist in the way that any of us knew it existed even five years ago, let alone let alone uh, uh, 20 or 30 when the Teletubbies was, was invented. So in a way, what the content industry and what the kids industry, content and licensing are trying to do is how do you put those pieces back together again or, or, or replicate that in a new world, given all the changes in behavior? Uh, and I think the good news is there's, 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 there's two or three different ways of looking at it. The first is it's much easier to innovate because actually you can, you can roll your sleeves up and try things uh, and test out a new franchise and actually be really quite successful quite quickly and with relatively little investment to actually start building up a franchise without necessarily having a, a, a big hit. And um, completely agree with, with Mark's point around, uh, around the binge-washing piece. Even if you get that big content um, commission, translating a binge-watching set of uh, set of consumption into an ongoing CP program can be can be harder. Um, so you can but, so with existing brands, you've now got this 360 opportunity around all the different platforms and how they fit together. You can innovate around creating new things much more e much e more easily than you could in the past. And then last but not least is the long tail, which you know, we've got a gigantic library of things which we can go back through and regularly mine for what is a new brand that used to exist, that has an existing audience, 
we can see where that existing audience is on the platforms we work on because we get the data for it, which means you can then start to bring that back to life in interesting ways. And what we're finding through working with, uh, with CPLG, which is our sister company in the licensing space, is joining up some of those things together just creates new opportunities that simply didn't exist. Completely agree that at its heart, we're an IP company. At its heart, this is about creativity and storytelling and great production and, and fantastic execution. But the new piece is data. So the fact that we can have really detailed data as, a, as an IP owner, as a distributor, on where our audiences are, on which bits of content they like, on how they react to pieces of content. We now, when we're making digital series on YouTube, we make them an episode at a time. And we are reviewing the content and reviewing the data that's coming back from viewing behavior, which is then informing how we make a new episode. Very different from a world in which you get a content commission and you go away for two years and make something and it may or may not work. So what, what this is unlocking, if you find the right people who, who can tell stories in the new way and who can then combine that with the data, the data doesn't get you a hit, uh, but it does help. It does help. Um, uh, it does help. Kind of a, a, an IP evolve with the audience that's engaging with it. Um, and the way we describe it is, it's um, uh, you know, it doesn't get you a bullseye, but it does get your darts closer to the bullseye. Um, and that's if you can if you can take some of the risk out of of, uh, of, of hit creating. That's that's obviously helpful. So taking taking Gary's point around technology is it, it's stuff that was invented after you were born. I mean, in a sense, we all look back to the very, very early days of our careers, and we kind of know how this is meant to work. And what's happened is there's been this sea change in consumption and interaction and, and rights windows and all the things that the industry is trying to, evolve, uh, trying to, trying to reconcile around. We'll get there. And the last, the last piece I just add, add in on that is it's specifically on the kind of the product side, the ability to do things... Uh, on the on the commerce side, direct to consumer, fast fashion, print to order, those sorts of things, again, means that you can follow on with with sort of light touch um, uh, exploitation of IP in a way that just simply wasn't possible. Again, two years, five years, ten years, to pick your time scale, that whole piece has has uh, has exploded as well. So there's a there's a lot of fluidity, I think, as we all uh, as, as we're all digesting how this change happens. At its heart is great IP and great storytelling, but the ways you can put the technology and the audiences together to to to, ma to maximise that opportunity um, is really exciting. What you were just describing there is almost the combination of art and science, right? Art being the storytelling and the foundations of what makes great content, and science being the fact that we now have access to reams of data that can really help us understand the behaviors of people their viewing habits what they you know what they love about something and then tweaking it accordingly hopefully to create the perfect the perfect piece of content um so i guess moving on from this um and mark i'm going to come to you first on this question that's a lot of change um there's a lot of ips coming out not ips there's a lot of content coming out um there's a lot more data available um how is retail responding to this um we know the shape of retail's changed um you know measurably over the past 18 months and particularly during the pandemic but how are they viewing this and is, is that making a change to anything that you're seeing at retail i think you know it, it's an interesting point because i think you know roll the clock back 10 years ago and you'd have said that content probably came from four different sources tv film publishing and toys now layer into that, you know, gaming, streaming, um, influencers, which have kind of come to fruition in the last 10 years. Retail, it's not like in the last 12 months, suddenly all of this different uh, diversification of content. It's more diversification of delivery of that content that has happened probably as a result of the pandemic. Um, and I think that that provides retail with kind of a conundrum on both sides. It's, it's a great opportunity, but yes, they've got to work out how to curate effectively all of these different opportunities. I still come back to fundamentally the heart of any real translation from content to physical consumer products is still that emotional connection um, with either the IP in terms of it being, you know, fictional characters, whether they're animated or live action, or in the case of, you know, influencers, whether they are true and genuine to the audience. So Jojo Siwa is a great example of where, you know, we took an influencer, brought Jojo into the Nickelodeon ecosystem because she really translated and meant a lot to her audience, which 
translators to Nickelodeon audience and really resonated therefore into the consumer products that they wanted to purchase as well. The same with gaming, when people are immersed in the world of gaming, if you're translating those physical products that really do lend themselves to that immersive world in gaming. So it does always come back to A, that kind of emotional connection. Yes, there's lots of data in terms of how many people are viewing your content through the various different sources, the dwell time, how long they are watching your content and being immersed in your content. But fundamentally, it still comes back to that emotional connection, that awareness of your IP and the desire for audiences to really live and embrace those characters or that IP beyond the screen. Um, so I actually think from a retailer's perspective, you know, it's, it's a real opportunity now to kind of expand um, their ranges, but also look at how to also look at more diversity in their ranges as well. And I think that's a you know, big thing that's happened as, as a result of the pandemic as well. We've seen you know, a real drive to improve and enhance both content from a diverse um, inclusion perspective, but then also how does that translate into products? Sustainability, I think, will be coming out of the pandemic, and there'll be a lot more focus on sustainability from consumers and retailers as well. And therefore, how does certain IPs and properties resonate more strongly in that sustainability space? Um, but fundamentally, I still you know, say that it's back to that emotional connection with the IP and therefore consumers wanting to purchase. And retailers, to a certain extent, have a better... Um, view on this through their own digital platforms when they look at failed searches. You know, if their consumers are there searching for IPs, they have a tool at their disposal to really work out what are those IPs that consumers are really wanting. Completely. And I think the sort of the penultimate point you were making about um, diversity and, and inclusion and sustainability kind of circles back to Gary's point at the beginning about kids now being probably the most active or activist um, of any generation so far in really kind of owning that owning that space. Final question that I'm just going to pose to John before we go. So, John, from your point of view, um, how are content creators reacting to kind of all these opportunities? And I guess the question is, um, now that there's so much more data and so many more abilities, I guess, to, to possibly prove maybe the success of a piece of content, does that mean that retail potentially are more likely to take a punt on something um, that might be a bit newer or, or perhaps from um, from a from a smaller organization than they might be used to in the past. John, that's for you. Um, I think potentially, yes. Um, but again, I think it's early days. Uh, I think one of the challenges that everybody's working through is as the behavior changes, I completely agree with, with, uh, with Mark's point around um, the need for the emotional connection, the need, the, 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 the need to believe um, in, in the power and potential of the franchise. And the data can help on that, but the the alignment of the data that we can get from these platforms and from this new form, these new forms of consumption, it's a new language, it's a new currency, um, and uh, everybody knows how the old currency works. So you can kind of get a ratings point, and you kind of know what that means, and uh, and and you can take decisions based on models that you've been working with throughout your career, and it kind of makes sense. Does that translate immediately into the same sort of sorts of levels of engagement on a on a games platform or on an able platform? That's what everybody's working through. Again, we will get there. Um, the reason I know we'll get there is if you as, uh, let's give you let's go back to the Teletubbies, really interesting example where we were uh, we were looking to um, uh, we're having some licensing conversations. Um, I think it was a Teletubbies, maybe in a different brand, uh, but it was in a territory where that show was no longer on TV. So it was no longer part of the regular schedule. And the conversations with the, with the licensees were, well, why would I do this? Because it's no longer being broadcast. At which point we dug out the ratings and said, well, this is the ratings that it used to get when it was last on broadcast. And this is now what it's doing on the Avon platforms. And it's way ahead. So actually, the amount of time that this brand is now being consumed in terms of uh, reach and engagement and viewing times and all the metrics that you can get off these platforms way exceeds what it used to be on broadcast. Um, but because those metrics are not yet kind of uh, part, part of the way that people think, um, I think there's, there's, there are a few people who are taking a leap of faith. There are a few people who, as ever, are kind of innovating at the edge um, and investing their own content. There are, we, we are working uh, very extensively with, with uh, some interesting categories, both in licensing, particularly in the toy industry um, and elsewhere, where people are saying, let's try different models, because the only way we can, we can learn as to which model is going to work uh, is by taking some bets and, uh, and, and doing some innovation, measuring it really carefully and seeing what works. 
that is starting to come through in terms of case studies that, that you look at and you go, this is definitely the way forward. Um, this needs innovative commercial partnerships between content creators and IP owners uh, and people who are in the licensing business, but those are beginning to happen. Um, so again, I think we're just on the edges of putting these pieces together and creating what these new models look like and underpinning that with metrics that, uh, that, that everybody can understand and buy into. But it's those pieces that need to come together at the same time. But it's getting there. And, and I would encourage people, uh, I would encourage people to experiment. The great thing, I mean, relative to, again, rewind a generation, if you wanted to work out how things worked by putting things on TV, you needed to talk to a TV broadcaster. Uh, I used to work at Channel 4 in the UK uh, a little ways back, and I often said that I learned more about the way this thing works from running my son's football team website than I did from running a big online service like Channel 4 because it's direct interaction with the consumer. Try something. Put up a YouTube channel. Takes, it would take most people a, a weekend to learn how to build a Roblox game. Try it because you'll learn a hell of a lot that way, and that will then inform what's possible uh, and, and the innovations that you start to take. It's a great call to, call to arms there, John. And actually, you've answered some of the questions that have come in, so nicely done. Um, Gary, I'm going to come to you with one of with the first of the questions that have come in um, from the audience. Um, and you know, through your experience with Kids Industries and you know some of the partners you have around the world, are you seeing kids use different media channels around the world? You know, by country, by continent, by language. You know, is there is there much of a distinction? Can I first say the last? Ten, I've just thoroughly enjoyed the last ten minutes. There's so much to think about. So thank you both. Um, uh, short answer is no. Long answers yes. The short answer is no because you know you think about a platform like let's stick with YouTube. You think about YouTube, YouTube Kids, and YouTube Kids. We must think of as a completely distinct product from YouTube. And and John and I are a great deal more than me about this. But it is you know it's algorithmic and human created. Uh, curated so you have um you know it's a little bit more picky about what's served up quite rightly so it's now i think in 103 countries and is the most downloaded app in all of those countries as, as i understand it from from alphabet and what they've been putting out so so you know if we think about where it's not about you know the device as mark said as john said you know whatever device the children want it on they'll get it and to go back to to what, what, what John just said there about retail, the second question that's always asked, I'm hearing at retail now is, after who's your toy partner, it's what's your YouTube strategy? And that's, that's ubiquitous around the world. And so, you know, no, I don't think there is a great difference. There are some that, that chart slightly better than others, and, you know, WeChat and Ubo in China, and, and then, you know, WhatsApp doesn't really seem to be happening so big in the US. It's massive in Europe. You know, there's, there's nuance. And actually today, just to, just to say, we've just launched our European network today. So if you want some help around Europe, we can certainly provide that as well. And there is nuance. But no, no, I would say, um, I would say that if you, you stick with YouTube, you're going to be all right. <laughs> John? Yeah, I'm happy to, happy to chime in. I think the one piece that I would add in there is... Um, difference between free and pay. Mm. So, and particularly in a post-COVID environment, we don't know what that was going to look like yet. The explosion in the number of, in the number of subscriptions that people have in, uh, in advanced economies, uh, I think people will rain back on that as people get out and about more. Uh, and then in, in, uh, in other markets, free, we know free works, and we know free and ad-funded works. Um, so I think that's why uh, particularly the Avon platform is going to be, going to be particularly successful. There's definitely a thread coming through as well um, in, in the questions around kind of the, the link around education, the link around um, academic enrichment. So here's a question. Um, we'll go to you first, John, on this. So we talk about media and content for entertainment and education, academic enrichment. Is there a future focus on creating content that will help improve the social and emotional intelligence so needed for today's kids? Um, and it, it talks back about Gary upticking the participation in media. So, you know, is there going to be a feature focus on this, do you think? And is that a direction that, that, that we're going to be going in? Um, I think it's tempting to think in buckets. So this is entertainment, this is education, this is worthy, this is just for fun. Again, I don't think kids think about that. I think it's of, of some of the stuff that uh, I think has, has, has been most educationally enriching of, of content uh, that I think of, uh, that my kids uh, have grown up with. Um, is it entertainment? Is it education? It's somewhere in between. And I think the best content uh, often is. 
Um, that said, I, I saw another question in the chat, which is around the, the edutainment space. Uh, do we think that's going to continue to, to evolve? And I think um, lockdown and homeschooling and I'm sure parents tearing their hair out as to how to keep, uh, how to keep kids both occupied um, and, uh, and kind of enriched uh, on devices at home. I don't see that going anywhere at all. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a that's that's a sector that's been growing. I think that's here to stay. I think that will uh, trickle back into the classrooms in in other interesting ways as as we combine as we take some of the stuff that's had to happen around remote learning back into a classroom setting. It's hard to imagine that classroom settings are ever going to quite be the same again after COVID as well. So I think all of these pieces again, nothing nothing ever dies. I think everything sort of intermingles. Um, and uh, I think out of that come interesting business models as well. So I think some of the some of the things that parents are willing to pay for. Uh, around some of those new uh, sort of education or edutainment related content, I think are going to be there. There's, there's, there is absolutely, we're seeing this in brief after brief that we're receiving, there's a massive growth in what we could call edutainment. And if you look at the, the macro numbers, um, market is currently at 55 billion. Um, and by 24, it's going to be 77 billion. And you've got companies that are, are capitalizing um at tens of billions of dollars that work in the edutainment space because the 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 the, the audience is there the audience is absolutely there it's, it's fascinating time and it's kind of you know it's something that's happening outside of you know what we're talking about now it's it's, it's the perfect blend of digital and everything that's happening online and you know there's sort of everything that's not happening online and that need for human interaction and the ability to be able to blend those two things is, is really where I think the opportunity is going to lie. Let's move on to um, a, a question. I'm going to I'm going to um, put to put to you, Mark. Um, with Viacom CBS certainly being uh, the masters of of this particular side of things. So one of the questions is: with so much content and so many ways to get it, how do you see new kids brands being built into long term brands? And are children losing their connections to brands as they flip from one to another um, so quickly? I mean, you've, you've kind of alluded to this um, previously, but let's just dig into this a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I just want to also pick up on that, that last question as well, because I think, you know, softer edutainment has always been at the heart of Nick Jr. as well. So if you look at shows like Blazing the Monster Machines, which is um, linked to STEM curriculum, even you look at Blue's Clues and You, which is more social intelligence, and it, even Paw Patrol. You know, Paw Patrol has a lot of kind of social and emotional intelligence in it. And in a recent article in the UK, actually Milkshake was brought out as the the biggest um, broadcaster in the UK for providing kids' education, actually beat the BBC um, during the pandemic in terms of the number of hours of content that was across Nick Jr. and Milkshake in terms of providing kind of content that it really helps children with both their social, emotional, and education um, experiences. When we look at kind of content and content creation and kind of building that, I think you're going to have a lot of expansion of existing IPs. At the heart of it, it, it does have to come down to good storytelling. You know, having an ensemble cast is usually good that the children can resonate with and, and see themselves or their friends or their family within an ensemble cast. Um, and then, the, you know, it is still, you know, a, a pitching process that, you know, creators will have to go through. But the, the opportunity now is there are far more different kind of opportunities to get that content placed. There's lots more, you know, not only buyers of content, but producers of content. And so whether that's coming to Viacom CBS and kind of pitching um, to put onto one of our platforms or working with VizKids uh, Studios International, or whether that's going to other um, broadcast platforms, be them AVOD or traditional free-to-air broadcasters. Um, but I think at the heart of it is still great storytelling, great scripts, an ensemble cast that will really resonate with kids and keep them coming back for more and more. And that's, that's the whole point. But, you know, I think um, John alluded to this, this earlier. You know, there is still, there's still a, a bit of an element of risk um, in any content that's being created. And, you know, you obviously go into that process planning on it to be success and planning to build out, you know, those great characters and storylines. Um, but ultimately, it's not until you put that content out there that you can really get the feedback from audiences to see whether they really want to immerse themselves and come back for more. Thanks, Mark. And um, well, here's an interesting question. Um, and um, coming back to sort of way back to sort of the linear side of things, John, here's a question for you. Um, someone's asking, do you think that 
all of this is going to mean that we're going to see the death of terrestrial TV? Or can you see that platform, um, that platform continuing? Um, well, terrestri terrestrial is a hard question. That's a, that's, a, that's a specific distribution mechanism. So there may be other ways of, uh, there may be, physics may allow other ways of uh, distributing content in the same way. Um, but th the broader question, death of linear broadcasting, absolutely not. Uh, in the same way that, you know, uh, I think, think Mark alluded to this earlier, you know, cinema didn't replace theatre. All of these things, nothing, nothing dies. We will figure out the way these things fit together and what they're for. Um, and I think some of the purposes of, uh, of broadcast TV uh, will still remain very strong. Um, I think it is a uh, it, it it is a kind of it is a shared experience. It is a family experience. It's one that you it, it is it is a it is an appointment to view experience. None of that's going to go away. Um, but equally, there are some things that other technologies can do at least as well, if not better. Uh, so availability of on demand and the, the idea that you can have personalised content fed up to you that, that is responding to your to your tastes and and recommendations, rather than a scheduler, that's quite helpful. You know, the, the 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 front screen of an SVOD platform, or YouTube knowing what I like, or Spotify somehow knowing CDs that are in my attic that I haven't listened to for twenty years, is really quite helpful. So I think all of these things will fit together. But I think linear will change, and what we're all trying to figure out is how these different platforms fit alongside each other. What I also think is true, though, is that you won't necessarily need linear to do the job that it's done in the past. A lot of people will still use it for that, and it'll be great perfectly possible to build a brand just on an SLR platform or to build a, plat uh, a brand just on a, on a YouTube platform or an Avon platform. Both of those things are true as well. Where the magic happens is where you've got a brand and an IP that is big enough to fit across all three and you figure out how the pieces work and you make that work for the audience. Great advice right at the end there. Now, we've got literally probably about a minute 30 um, for this final question, um, but there's been a few that have come in on this. So, Mark, I'm just going to ask you for probably the most succinct answer you're going to have to give today, so apologies for that. But do you see location-based entertainment um, or location-based entertainment, you know, being uh, a, a considerable um, area of focus for, for the licensing and licensees? Simple answer, yes. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, once we get out of this pandemic, absolutely, location-based experiences is going to be critical for providing audiences with a great immersive experience, but also building IP. So absolutely, yes. Thank you for being that succinct. Much appreciated. We don't have time, I'm afraid, everyone, for any more questions. Um, we're almost at the hour. Um, so I just want to take some time to say a huge thank you to Mark, to John, and to Gary for your time today and your incredibly valuable insights. I, you can tell by the interaction with the audience that um, this has been really, really interesting. So thank you very much. Um, from my point of view, just to remind everyone that this will be available on demand. So if you have colleagues that are unable to attend, then we will, we will make this available. Um, and to the rest of the audience, um, hopefully you'll join us again. And that is all we've got for now. So thank you all for, um, for being with us today. Um, and have a good rest of the evening or a good rest of the morning if you go around the world. So thanks, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you all soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. I think we'll all agree there is some incredible content to digest there. But just to close, please do make sure that you leave a like, a subscribe, or follow us on whatever platform you found us on, and stay tuned to licenseglobal.com for even more breaking news, trend analysis, and in-depth interviews. Thanks for listening to the License Global Live panel, and in our next episode, we'll be back discussing NFTs with Epic, and how digital assets may just change the way or rip up the rulebook as we know it. But in the meantime, all that's left for me to say is thank you for listening.